find something of value. The higher education community in South Africa is on intellectualization. How central this humanity is. Welcome to The Academic Citizen. I'm your host, Mahita Ikani. Most university researchers and educators would say that they chose their career paths out of passion or love for their discipline or subject. It's almost taboo to bring up the topic of money, and a lot of us might feel uncomfortable talking about what we're paid. That said, fair pay has indeed been lobbied for in the higher education sector. For example, Fitz University academics went on strike in 2012, I think it was, to demand that their salaries meet the benchmarks at other top South African universities. Of course, like every other institution in the capitalist economy, universities revolve around money, income, and expenditure. So this podcast is devoted to thinking through a few of the complexities, and there are many, that arise when considering the financial status and functioning of our universities and the higher education sector in general. There are so many things to think about in relation to money and the university, including things like precarious working conditions for teachers and postdoctoral researchers, access to funding, the politics of big grants and who gets them and who doesn't, and the economics of research versus teaching in general. Some of these themes we might come back to in later episodes, but for now, we're going to explore some aspects of the bigger picture of how money makes the university go round. We start by considering the broader context of the economy in which we are operating. In South Africa, and indeed many global South countries, this is a context of gross inequality. Then we move on to considering the experiences of poor students at university and the ongoing problem of student debt and a fees-centered university access system. Then we consider the perhaps thorny topic of vice-chancellor pay, and speak to one remarkable former VC who donated significant portions of his salary when he was in the top job at the university currently known as Rhodes. Hi there, my name is Dr. Salima Valiani. I'm an independent researcher based in Johannesburg. Poverty and joblessness are highly visible in South Africa, if not on our university campuses, most certainly all around them. And those of us who are lucky enough to have permanent employment in the current economy, whether it's at a university or somewhere else, we may often experience angst about the suffering of others. In this context, and also in the context of the ever-growing cost of living, It's arguably really important for all university workers to stop for a moment and to think about what a living wage means. We all pay our taxes, from the cleaners and gardeners who keep our campuses beautiful, right up to the professors, deans and rectors, who are the most highly paid members of the university communities. So I spoke to Salima Valiani about the relationship between the living wage and how taxes are and should be used to the benefit of everyone in a society. Let me tell you a figure from Stats South Africa from about nine years ago. We have 9.5% of employed men and 20.5% of employed women earning less than 1,000 rands per month. Now, that's probably changed a little bit, but not that much. And if you're earning that little, even on part-time employment, that is below the poverty line that's calculated, again, by Stats South Africa for that year. 
You also have in South Africa, for those that are employed, right? We know that millions are unemployed. But for those that are employed, they are working very long days. They're working the most per day in the entire continent. So we've got overworked people. We've got severely underpaid people. And likely linked to this is a huge jump since 2014 in the number of strike days in this country. So 2014, you had about 1,750 strike days. 2018, that figure went up by 7,000 times to about 130,000 days lost per year to strikes. Most of that is in the private sector. So this, again, is what can help explain the extreme wealth that is carried by a small few in South Africa. Again, this is why we need a wealth tax. I was struck in conversation with Salima by something that perhaps should have been blindingly obvious to me already, but it really became clear in conversation with her. And that is the fact that it is expensive to be poor. The multiple forms of social and economic marginalization that the lowest paid workers experience means that it costs them hugely to gain access to the things that they need, like water or healthcare, the things that everyone needs. Farm workers and others want to work. They want to contribute. Simply giving handouts does not do much for people's self-esteem. And the kinds of amounts that we could provide are so very little that they will be very unlikely to change anything. Right now, farm workers, the way they make ends meet is by taking loans. Now, these are not loans from the bank. These are very high interest loans to the degree of 50% interest rate. And of course, they can't afford those loans. So what you have through these loan sharks, basically, is a situation where women are giving their SASA card to the loan shark who takes an amount as soon as the money comes in to put toward these debts that are rising. If you simply put a few more rands into people's pockets, that will just increase that cycle. So it will end up back with the loan sharks. It's not going to change much at all. I can't imagine anyone would argue with the statement that the way this economy is organized is unjust, that the poverty many are forced to live with, even when they have a job and are working hard all week long, is unfair. It's when we get to the how, how do we fix it question, that disagreements are likely to arise. Salima argues that there is a way to move forward, and that way is a wealth tax. Unfortunately, the reality in South Africa is that public services are wanting. You know, the public sector has been shrinking since 1995. The only area in the economy of growth has actually been the financial and business services sector. So given that the public sector is not providing what people need, then people do spend from their pocket. 
on basics like health and education. The reason why then we come to a demand for a wealth tax in our research is precisely for this reason. How do we create the public services that the individual can never afford out of pocket, particularly a group of working poor like the wine farm workers or the fruit farm workers or really any farm workers in this country? They do not have the salary to cover things like health care when you work in a toxic industry and you have been carrying intergenerational health issues. So we track the stories in the paper of what the healthcare needs are. And ultimately, when you ask for a wealth tax, it is because of extreme inequality, which we say a lot in South Africa, but I don't think we really know what that looks like. And if you don't mind, I could actually paint you that picture. What we have in South Africa is a situation where the top 10% of the population owns 99% of all stocks and bonds, 84% of all pension assets, and 60% of housing. So this is basically 3 million people that own all of this, how can 3 million people be living in 60% of the housing? Well, they own that housing and they rent it out to make yet more money. They don't live in all of those houses. So when we call for a wealth tax, we are calling for that wealth to be taxed by the state in order to build the public services that farm workers and other working poor and other poor people need. And that is why when we laid out our wealth tax demand, we talked about public services as a way to use the money earned through such a tax. We did not go to the basic income grant, which again, will never cover the basic needs as we're discussing. Salima made the argument that public funds should be massively invested in public resources that can make people's lives better in tangible ways. Education is one of those resources. Fees Must Fall brought the conversation about free higher education into the public domain several years ago. And although there were important wins, many smart, qualified and academically achieving students are still excluded from the opportunities presented by attending university. I wanted to speak with the UCT SRC because at the beginning of the 2022 academic year, they staged a pretty visible protest about student debt. My name is Kathy Mtejani. I am the Secretary General of the SRC. And I am doing my third year in Bachelor of Social Sciences, majoring in politics, philosophy, and history. It's very much important to realize that the call for free education is actually put on a hold by different structures of the government. This is one topic and one elephant in the room that the government does not want to address. 
and the government has turned a blind eye on, which is very problematic in all kinds of senses. So the call for free education is something that is very pivotal and very important towards the student role within the country. And when you look at the constitution of South Africa, where it states that everyone has the right to education, it is very limited in its sense that the government has to now, in a broader picture, now consult their frameworks about education and how they can make education accessible towards all students. What's happening now is that the government is saying that students have the right to free education. But when you look at the students that are in universities that are being afforded this right to education by Nesfa's Basari scholarships and parents, Africa at, at its most has 60% of youth. And now when you look at the rate of unemployment in South Africa, then you ask yourself, what is the government doing about the students that are excluded from universities? What is the government doing about students within different diversity backgrounds that are not being able to have the accessibility to go in universities? Is the government being quiet about it? What is the government doing? And it all comes down to free decolonized education within South Africa. I think it is very important from my perspective for the government to sit down and firstly resolve how they can decolonize the education system in South Africa and ensure that it is free and accessible to everyone who wants to be a student and who has endeavors to be a student. The issue from 2015 fees must fall, these issues have not been resolved at all. They were given interim solutions and from there on, it has escalated. Each year, the issue escalates because each year it is not that these institutions post fees that are decreasing. Each year, universities increase their fees with a certain percentage. So you can understand the amount of backlog that it has created on the issue of free decolonized education. So I think that's my perspective on it, that it has, in fact, increased amount of backlog issues within the concept in its own. It has not resolved anything because till today in University of Free State, University of KZN, there were students that were being shot at. There were some physical and systematic violence that happened against students. And when you look at the representative of students, Minister Bladen Zamande, the policies that he's passing against students, it is totally exclusionary and shows all kinds of systematic violence imposed on students. So in the issue of fees and debts, it is not our call to prepare the government on how to resolve the issue. It is the government's call in order to look and review their frame policies in order to ensure that they reform their policies to include these students who are financially excluded within universities and institutions. Katleho Mtenjane spoke very passionately about how university bureaucracies and government inaction combines into pushing some students, those from poor families, into very toxic, precarious and stressful situations at the start of an academic year. I think on a surface level, we can all agree that these students that come from poor, marginalized communities, they receive some form of exclusionary violence by the system and these tertiary institutions. But I think we must recognize this intersectionality of issues. So economically, as much as, for instance, myself, I'm a poor Black student, you can get a sense of, at my household, we earn at least 800 rands per week. So then, even though you have some form of money, for the next student, it may be that they receive 400 rands for that week. So you must understand that there's an intersectionality of issues. So it's not a one cap fits all or just a one umbrella 
that can resolve or one umbrella of solutions. However, there must be an intersectionality of providing solutions economically and politically. I think first things first, we need to even acknowledge that Black people do not even have the economical means to even start having that conversation about the economics of the country or economics of the institution. On a broader level, we do not have economical power. The only thing that we have is political power. And then what is political power without economic power, you know? So it is definitely a loaded debate in terms of how we can transform our economy in itself. Another problem on the mental health is existing within villages or urban areas or places where as you can access internet, you cannot access even understanding what's going on within your feed depths and problems such as that. You know, it poses a lot of mental issues for these students, not knowing the certainty of where you are going now, where can you have funds? I mean, if the university is saying you must pay back over 100,000 rands. As a poor marginalized student, where are you supposed to find this 100,000 rands? Where will you start, especially if you exist in an income household that earns way less than 3,000 per month? So you can understand. I think from just highlighting that, you can actually understand the kind of issues that these students had to go through. I mean, some of the students even came to Cape Town thinking that these will be resolved and they struggled with having residences. Some had to sleep with their relatives. Some had to find other means to cope within the university, even though the university was just issuing interim solutions and not permanent ones. So it became a very big issue with results to the daily lived experiences of students that were excluded. Going to university is meant to be a transformative experience for the individual, as both the social environment and the academic content offer multiple routes for self-growth, the exploration of ideas, and figuring out how, as an individual, one is going to participate in society. But for poor students, these opportunities are robbed of them because of the stress and suffering that comes along with financial pressure and social exclusion on the basis of income. When you are in the university, I think first, for instance, is that when you're looking at the registration process of poor students amongst rich students, then you can see from just arriving within the university, I mean, other students are being transported by their parents. And whereas you as a poor student, there's no way your parents can take a flight and transport you to the universities because already they have existed the small means of being able to send you to university. It comes in physical things that you can tell where a student is poor, whereas another one is rich, what type of clothing they're wearing, what type of luggage they're carrying. And it kind of, from that sense, gravitates them towards what their university life would be. So there's always that first part of exclusion, first part of you seeing that you do not exist within the space and you being very uncomfortable with your existence within the space and itself from the first day you arrive. And I think moving forward, then you see the inequalities, the type of inequalities that exist whereas you went to a public high school, whereas you learned in first additional language as English. English was first additional language. You go into university, now you have to compete with people that have learned English and applied English and English as a home language. You compete now with students that have already know what it means to use the laptop and less and type lectures in less than an hour they already typed 900 words in less than an hour they were already typing 500 words and whereas you yourself you have to still learn how to even type 
you know, this is your first time using a laptop even. You don't know how a laptop is being used. You don't know the word, the Excels, all these formats of typing within a laptop. So I think with that physical demonstration of how then the incoming qualities show itself, I think from there on going up, it is just going to be the university culture of income inequality showing itself within the university. And I think as students, it does kind of cause this division among students to then say that there is a gap within income inequalities. As a rich and poor students, even if the way they arrange themselves, you can always see, oh, okay, this is this income bracket. This is that income bracket. It's always an issue. Income inequality has a multiplier effect within the country and issues that arise within the country in itself. And I think in institutions, it plays out very well. And that's when it's actually at its peak for you to see that actually income inequality exists because everyone moves from their different income inequality backgrounds. And now they are put in an institution where there's so much diversity. So if you're not previously exposed to knowing that there are actually extremely rich people, now you come to university and you encounter that. So that becomes a university culture accommodates rich people. So in itself, it's like your existence is always questionable as a poor student within universities. Each day you question your existence, whether you deserve to be there. And especially if there are measurements such as fee blocks, academic exclusion, financial exclusion, that continuously show you that your time here is calculated. I want to pause here to remember that for students like Katlejo and those that she has been elected to represent, it is a violent experience in its own right to have to speak again and again and again to and about their financial struggles and the ways in which they've been excluded and to have to keep reliving and representing traumatic experiences in the public eye just to try and get those in power to listen and act. Well-off students who pay fees get to just enjoy university life, but poor students have to constantly objectify their own suffering as part of the project of trying to change the systems that cause that suffering. It is a tiring call to continuously have to fight and to romanticize how poor you are, how poor this um you know, how how poorly the, the system and the university in itself is 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 exercising its ability to assist you and to accommodate you. It is very tiring, honestly, to speak on that because it's, it's, it's very frustrating, man, to always have to say, Hey guys, you know, make it accommodating. And when you see people, especially elite people who are privileged and who are blinded by their privilege to a point where they cannot see or they cannot even recognize the extent of how much a problem it is for you as a poor marginalized student. So who is in power then to act? Vice chancellors at South African universities are the people in the top job. And although they don't set fees themselves, university councils ordinarily do that. They are the public facing leaders of higher education institutions and their attitudes and actions can set the tone. We do know what the president of the country earns. We do know what cabinet ministers earn. So why don't we know what vice chancellors earn? This is Professor Salim Badat, who has many wonderful leadership qualities to admire and a wealth of experience in higher education leadership in South Africa. Good morning. I'm Salim Badat, I'm research professor in the Humanities Institute at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. 
Previously, I was head of the advisory body to the Minister of the Council on Higher Education for seven years. And after that, between 2006 and 2014, I was Vice-Chancellor of Rhodes University. When Salim was VC of the university currently known as Rhodes, he made the decision to publicly share off and donate a portion of his salary, and he put it into a fund for students. When you're entering a new job and the kind of pressures and needing to establish yourself as the vice chancellor and all that, it certainly doesn't hurt when that goodwill is created and when people recognize that and thank you for that. The other thing it does do, suddenly other people wanted to give money to the university. So a well-known apartheid church activist who at that point had not wanted to give any money to Rhodes for political reasons, suddenly says, I'm going to give you a lot of money. I've been inspired by the position you've taken. Others began doing that too, right? And so it was not just the scholarship fund and my funds that were going in. Others were contributing, saying, I want to put money into that fund, right? So it does set off a chain reaction. And the goodwill amongst alumni is also incredible, whether the alumni are in different places and so on. And then you're able to engage the alumni. How about in due course when you earn better, doing something like this. How about contributing to the university? How about contributing to this fund, right? Especially if you had scholarships like me as a first-generation, scholarships changed my life. Otherwise, I wouldn't be where I am, right? And so you're able to engage people around something like this and saying, you know, thank you for the recognition, but I'd be happy if you do something similar in due course, right? So I just see the benefits of something like this, not just at the personal level of making you feel good and so on, but institutionally, there are all kinds of benefits that come from this. Let me clarify that the decisions I took were not about immoral high ground or about embarrassing other vice chancellors. I was taking a personal and a political stand. Many academics do things like this, right? We donate to causes that we care about, whether it's once off or monthly. Many of us have been known to subsidize students who need help directly from personal resources on the basis of personal appeals or knowing that particular students are having a rough time, wanting to help them, generally just caring about them. Many academics volunteer time and expertise to move various social justice projects forward. So, you know, I do think this notion of donation and volunteering is in many ways at the heart of many academics' lifestyles and life choices. But there's something especially heartening when a very powerful and very well-paid person does the same thing and is quite humble about it as well in the way that he speaks of that choice and making that choice to donate. So that Professor Salim Badat donated a swath of his salary in itself, this suggests that he felt or considered that he might be getting more than he necessarily needed. So this topic of vice-chancellor pay comes up, and this links to a bigger debate about how much more should the top earners in an organization earn than the bottom earners. So the university, the South African university in specific, is not Amazon, right, that archetype of corporate inequality where the founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos, earns more in a minute than the lowest paid Amazon worker will earn in almost five years. 
So really, it was about, you know, what kind of community are we creating at a university when you have this kind of differentials and so on? But there were two or three other concerns I really had also. Firstly, it was about universities taking a lead in modeling possible alternative futures of public good nature. If universities are not going to take a lead in this country about showing to the rest of society as part of their knowledge function, really, and putting their money where their mouths are, right, then I'm not sure which other institutions are going to take that kind of lead in society, right? So that was something that I was really concerned about. The second is that I think universities must be catalysts of change and transformation. For heaven's sake, we're talking about transformation uh, all the time. And it doesn't seem to me that we internalize what transformation could be or should be at the deepest individual level, right? About modeling other kinds of conduct and behavior and modeling it not just for ourselves, but for the rest of society, if you like, right? So it was about pushing the boundaries of where it is within the realm of the possible. Some things are not possible for the universities to change, at least, you know, because of structure and conjunction and so on. But this is one area. It's quite possible for universities to take the lead and model other kinds of behavior. And finally, also to bring it back to today now, I also want to assume that this is precisely what is meant by engagement. When universities in South Africa and people say we must be engaged universities. Okay. Maybe some people don't see this as engagement. They would prefer to engage around many other things but not around income differentials within universities and so on. But I consider this engagement because it's engagement by modeling certain behaviors and practices for the rest of society. And then to come back onto the moral high ground issue. Well, that was not my purpose. Yes, when you do model a certain more progressive behavior, you do occupy the moral ground. And then you can say to the CEOs of businesses, this is indecent. I don't think a vice chancellor who tells the CEOs it's indecent, who earns a performance bonus of 650000 in that year, which is higher than the salary of a director at Rhodes, has got too much grounds to talk about indecent. Salim made a striking, strong and quite clear argument, I felt, that there should be public debate and transparency about what vice chancellors earn. We know what Jeff Bezos is worth, so we can have those debates, you know, as appalling as... Those debates might make us feel, but it is difficult to have those debates about VC pay if there aren't transparent opportunities to have those debates in the university sector. I wonder how many other vice chancellors will share the view that Professor Badat shared. The kind of openness and debate that I think is needed regarding vice chancellor pay, it's one of those things that can set the tone for a culture of economic justice within an institution, especially an institution that's meant to serve as a microcosm of society more broadly. And it's also something that is clearly super important considering the ongoing student suffering that is taking place not to mention the suffering of low-paid and outsourced workers at university, including low-paid and outsourced academic workers. The interesting aspect is, and that's, there's some research that should be done here, and it's not different comparatively in the United States or elsewhere. Your top research universities are not the highest paid by chancellors. So I hate rankings. I think they're the most perverse social science. That they distort universities. But usually... It's not the most highly ranked 
in terms of times higher education and so on, who are the vice chancellors with the highest pay. It's actually universities that don't even appear in the rankings, in the top uh, 100 or 200. Isn't that interesting? So perhaps the argument of the council is that, well, if we don't pay them really well, we're not going to be able to attract anyone good. They'll go to a research university. And, you know, I think that's true, Megita. At the end of the day, if you had paid me as a professor at Rhodes, I would have still gone to Rhodes as vice-chancellor. It was not the money here. And that was still going to be about, even if you paid me as a professor, that was going to be about more or less of 10, 20% more what I was earning as a chief director level, as the CEO of the Council on Higher Education. Right? So, you know, I'm fairly confident that people who are serious do it for the money reasons. To have the privilege of leading a university, thinking you can shape the university together with students and academics is an incredible privilege. And they paid well on top of that. Surely there should be some kind of collective oversight and public discussion about vice-chancellor pay, including things like executive bonuses, which are called different things in different settings. For example, in some places I've heard these bonuses referred to as variable pay. Running a university is surely a very difficult job, and I don't think anyone is suggesting that this job shouldn't be properly rewarded monetarily for the skills and experience that the person doing it needs to bring to the task. But in the context of student suffering, a very wonky economy, massive unemployment and poverty, how can we justify hugely inflated vice-chancellor salaries and a lack of open and transparent debate about how those salaries are decided upon? But this also requires the universities and the councils of the universities to be absolutely honest now about what those perks are, because they're always of hiding those perks. So you never get to the cost-to-company package. I think the people who do the research on this will tell you, getting to that figure of what the total package is is sometimes very difficult because there's a salary, there's a pension, there's buybacks, which is another story, there's these trips, there's the housing subsidy part which you are meant to pay tax on when you bring all that together. Is that the full figure you're declaring or are you only declaring the salary part and so on, only salary pensions? Now, you know, I think it's a scandal that even today we don't have that final figure from universities, that there's gerrymandering around those kinds of things. Right. So if you do want to know what your VC is paid, in theory at least, you should be able to find out. You should be able to go to the relevant administrative offices in your university and ask for the reports, the annual council reports, the annual financial statements, and you should be able to scrutinize them and find out. So if anyone does decide to do that bit of research and has anything they'd like to share, please do send us any feedback or comments via our email or WhatsApp line, and you can get all those details at the end of the podcast or on our website. It's time to read the room. Here's what we've been reading lately. I'm Tara Mackay producer of The Academic Citizen, and this is my contribution to Read the Room. Deneba Ndeye, assistant professor in the psychology department at Sheikh Anto Diop University, Dakar, Senegal's recent article, Buying Our Way into Humanness, Consumerism and the Dehumanization of the Poor, published in the Journal of Law, 
Social Justice and Global Development is worth a read. Ndeye makes the argument that in a consumer society, whether one is considered fully human or not, is increasingly being determined by what one can buy. She explores the link between the social psychology concept of dehumanization, defined as denying human characteristics to human beings, and consumerism. She unpacks that in a consumer society, goods are not necessarily bought for what they are or the functions they serve, but for what they symbolize. To quote, Neighborhood status, clothing brands, and cars may seem superficial compared to adequate food and health care, which other meanings of poverty may focus on. However, to the extent that they can determine social worth in the consumer society, they have profound psychosocial consequences. End quote. In a context where social value and inclusion are increasingly attained through the capacity to consume high-end goods, the poor are systematically excluded from access to the mechanisms to belong to that society. She stresses the immense psychological impact this exclusion has, given that, to quote, the need to belong has been identified as one of the most important psychological needs for humans, and experiencing exclusion is extremely painful, end quote. Though the work focuses on the impact that this social system has on the poor, Implicitly, we are all called to scrutinize our participation in a system that, to quote, benefits from social disintegration and increased individualism, one that's expansion would not have been possible without the dismantling of social cohesion, social institutions, and traditional values, close quote. Ndeya asserts that social psychology the study of how the social context influences people's thoughts, feelings, and behaviors is well suited to better understand such subjective experiences of poverty under neoliberalism and calls for more research into this area. Mihita here, and my contribution to Read the Room for this episode is that I think everyone should read Siswe Mpofu Walsh's book, The New Apartheid, which came out in 2021. It is so good. Aside from being a superb writer with a fantastic ability to craft precise sentences with clear arguments, Mpofu Walsh's important book achieves a lot in a short space, kind of like his sentences. It sums up all of the ways that the exclusionary structures of the racist apartheid state were reformed in the neoliberal democracy that was born in 1994. He shows not only how economic apartheid persisted into the current day, but how. He explains how segregationary laws were replaced with fees and that oppression has become privatized through a variety of economic concessions made by political power. Here's a quote summing up the spirit of the book's argument. The new apartheid has no single architect, nor is it driven by grand unified theory. It is robust because it is leaderless. Whereas apartheid emerged in part by meticulous design, the new apartheid persists organically. Superb book, highly recommend reading. And if you have any thoughts or opinions on any of the things that we have reviewed in Read the Room today, please feel free to share them. You're also welcome to submit your own two to three minute reviews of any journal article, book, documentary, website, whatever you think may be of interest or that 
the academic citizen community might enjoy knowing about. And you can send those reviews to our email address or WhatsApp line. Details coming in the credits and on our website. The Academic Citizen is produced and funded by the South African Research Chair in Science Communication, hosted at Stellenbosch University. The aims of our podcast are to create a space for wide and deep discussion about key issues animating higher education in South Africa, Africa, the Global South, and beyond. Create a space for interdisciplinary exchange for academic researchers and educators. Help researchers, educators, and scientists to tell their stories and listen to and learn from each other's insights and experiences. And create a space for science in all forms to be communicated in order to serve social justice. We welcome your feedback, opinions, and suggestions for future guests and show themes. Email us at theacademiccitizen at gmail.com or visit our website www.the-academic-citizen.org. This podcast was produced, researched, and scheduled by Taryn McKay. It was sound edited by Victoria Dalla Harper and Fumani Mabuhwani, who provides marketing and communication support. We would like to thank Professor Mohammed Salim Badat, Dr. Salama Valiani, and Ms. Katlejo Kathy Ntenjani for contributing to this episode. Mm-hmm.